Well, good morning to you. And I will also do the traditional Easter greeting and say that he is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Amen. We, uh, we have a lot to celebrate today, Easter outreach being one of the things. So thank you to all of you who made that possible, um, to all of you who gave money also to that project, because in addition to the local aspect of distributing meals, uh, we also have been raising money to build three uh, water wells in Africa through our partnerships there, through a partnership with Water is Basic uh, and a few other ministries in South Sudan. So thank you for that. Um, we were still waiting to get the final total on the dollar amount, so I'll keep you updated on that in the weeks to come and as that project kind of rolls out um, from there. But thank you for all of you who participated in that in various, various ways. Uh, the other thing that I get to celebrate, just got, uh, great to see many of you out Friday night. We did a combined Good Friday service with our friends at West Shore Free Church. Uh, it was a great time just to worship together with them, to be reminded that um, there are, by the grace of God, multiple churches in the region in which we live um, that seek to faithfully proclaim the good news of Jesus. Uh, we get to be one of those. We're grateful that others uh, exist, and we le- like to link up and join our voices in celebration from time to time. Um, so that was a great time. Uh, great to see many of you were able to make it out um, Friday night. If you have Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way to Matthew chapter 28. Uh, That's where we're going to be uh, this morning. And as I think probably most of you know, it would probably be safe to assume this, um, for Christians and for the Christian faith, Easter is the day. This is the day, and that's because the resurrection is the pivotal event. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no Christianity, there are no Christians in the world. Now, I don't presume to think that everybody who's here in this room this morning believes that. So I just want to be another person who says, again, to all of you who are here, welcome. Welcome to all of you who are here. Um, Welcome to those of you who are here because you believe and because you want to celebrate and join your voices together with others today to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And also welcome to those of you who don't believe. Thank you for, for your time. Um, And thank you for your presence with us. That's a privilege. I count that a privilege that you would be here with us. And and maybe you're here this morning because it makes your family feel good that you would attend church with them on a Sunday like today. Or maybe you're here today because somewhere in the history of the traditions of your family, uh, going to church on key holidays like Christmas and Easter are are important. So you're here for that reason. Or maybe some of you are here uh, because you're really seeking meaning and purpose in life. And there's something that's compelling, I don't know what, uh, something that's compelling about the message of Jesus, so you came just to explore that. Whatever it is, for whatever reason you find yourself here this morning, just welcome to you. Whether you consider yourself one who believes or one who doesn't, I'm going to invite all of us this morning to consider a few words uh, as we begin from a man named Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer was a pastor and a theologian. He passed away about 30 years ago. Uh, And unlike many pastors and theologians, Francis Schaeffer was a man of intellectual integrity, incredibly high intellectual integrity. And in one of his writings, he says this, In the face of this modern nihilism, nihilism meaning um, life without meaning, life without purpose, in the face of this modern nihilism, Christians are often lacking in courage. We tend to give the impression that we will hold on to the outward forms of our faith, whatever happens, even if God really is not there. But the opposite ought to be true of us, so that people can see that we demand the truth of what is there, and we are not dealing merely with platitudes. 
In other words, it should be understood that we take this question of truth and personality so seriously that if God were not there, we would be among the first of those who had the courage to step out of the queue. So some Christians would say, you know, it doesn't really matter if the resurrection and the miracles of the Bible and all this stuff, it doesn't really matter if that's true. So what if they're just stories? It doesn't really matter if Jesus rose from the dead or not. If, if we believe that that happened, and if that gives meaning and purpose to our lives, well, that's really all that matters. But Schaefer would argue, actually, that's cowardly. That's cowardly, and it lacks intellectual integrity. So instead of simply trying to create a subjective meaning for our lives, Christians should be those who care about what is really true. And Schaefer's in really good company with this line of thinking because it's the same thing that the Apostle Paul says specifically about Jesus' resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I want, I want each of us to allow ourselves to feel the weight of those statements this morning. Paul is hanging there the entirety of the Christian faith on this one objective historical event, which is the resurrection of Jesus. And he says that the Christian faith is pointless. It's futility unless Jesus really did rise from the dead. So we're going to read here from Matthew chapter 28 in just a moment. But the reason that I'm starting by asking you to consider these words from Francis Schaeffer and then the Apostle Paul is because whether you do believe or whether you do not believe this morning, I'm going to invite all of us to explore the resurrection with integrity. Because the reality is, both for those of us who do believe and for those of us who don't, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an incredibly inconvenient truth. So follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 15. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is God's word. 
Let me pray for us. God, thank you for rising from the dead. And thank you for inviting us to consider what is actually true and for through men like the Apostle Paul hanging all of the Christian faith on an objective historical event. Help us to be people who care about what is actually true and not just what creates meaning for our lives. And I pray that this morning, from the faithful recording of your word, that you would work deeply in our hearts, that you would invite us to see not only that the resurrection is true, but the inconvenience that means for all of us, whether we currently believe or whether we don't. We pray this in your name. Amen. So this text here in Matthew 28, this is the Apostle Matthew's account of the resurrection of Jesus. But actually, more accurately, it's the account of how people learn about Jesus' resurrection. I don't know if you noticed that as we read it. We don't actually read about Jesus getting up and walking out of the tomb. We read about the empty tomb. We read about the angel's claim that the one who has been crucified is now risen. And we read about the response from the guards. We read about the response from these women who were there early in that morning. The question for us then is, is that enough to believe? Is this enough for us to believe? The body is not there. And we have to account for that somehow. For the past 2,000 years, various theories have been suggested about how and why the body is no longer in this empty tomb. And in his book called Basic Christianity, John Stott does a great job outlining these in detail. I would commend that book to any of you who want to dig into this a little bit more. But let's just walk through a couple of those theories together this morning in brief. One is the theory that the women went to the wrong tomb. So it was early, it was early in the morning, it was before the sun had come up, it was dark. Uh, they were depressed, they were sorrowful because Jesus had just died. Maybe they went to the wrong place, and they went to a tomb that had always been empty. But see, when Jesus was buried, these same women saw the place where he was laid. They saw that the rock rolled across the entrance to that tomb. And so to believe that they went to the wrong tomb, we'd have to believe that they not only couldn't find their way back to the right one, but that everyone else who went to the tomb after that did the same thing and made the same mistake. Another theory is sometimes called the coma theory or the swoon theory. That the idea being that Jesus didn't really die on the cross at all, but he just swooned or he just went into a coma on the cross and then resuscitated later in the tomb. He resuscitated later, as the theory goes, he got up, he left the tomb, and then he appeared to the disciples a little bit down the road. The problem with that, there are several, but one is that the Roman guards who killed Jesus, they were professional executioners. And they themselves were convinced that Jesus had actually died. They, they thrust the spear into his side and saw the blood and the water come out, and they were thoroughly convinced that this man was dead. Moreover, to believe that, to believe this theory, we'd have to believe that Jesus not only survived the cross, but that after enduring severe beatings and surviving being crucified, without any kind of medical care, he could somehow rally. He could somehow rally and muster the superhuman strength that would have taken for him to roll away the rock by himself. And then, not only that, but then appear to his disciples and give them the impression that he had conquered death. Right? The disciples are so thoroughly convinced that he conquered death, that they then go around the rest of the world claiming that this man is alive, this man has conquered the grave, and they do that at great cost to themselves. Another theory is that, the, that somehow thieves got in and stole the body. 
But then we would also have to find an explanation for how those thieves got past this guard that was stationed there. And we'd have to explain why thieves would uh, go to the trouble of stealing this man's body, but leaving behind the grave clothes in their place. Another theory is that the disciples stole the body. And that's the story here that the Jewish leaders propose in this text. They pay the guards a large sum of money to spread around. This is actually why the guards are stationed at the tomb in the first place. The the Jewish leaders fear that this will happen, that the disciples will steal the body of Jesus and then claim that he is alive again. The biggest problem with that theory is that we, we then are left to find a radically different explanation for this incredible transformation that happens in the life of the disciples. When we leave them at Jesus' crucifixion, when we last read of them, they are cowering, they are ashamed, they're distancing themselves from Jesus. Peter's denying him with, with curses upon himself. After his death, we find them hiding in a locked room out of fear. And then something happens that makes them some of the most courageous and self-sacrificial people that the world has ever known. They not only travel the world telling people Jesus is alive, but they do that to the point of their own suffering, their own beatings, their own imprisonment, for almost all of them, their own death. And not one of them ever recants. Would they really do that for something that they orchestrated themselves? People die for things they believe in all the time. If you watch the news, people die for things they believe in every day. Sometimes people will die for lies that they made up themselves. But does a whole group of people together make up a story, a story in which they all look so foolish for not believing it in the first place, and then turn around and with unified confidence go around the world proclaiming that story until they're all killed for it? Okay, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. One last theory is perhaps the most plausible It's the theory that either the the Roman authorities or the Jewish authorities, they took the body into their own custody in order to keep the disciples from stealing it. They're clearly concerned that people are going to claim Jesus rose again from the dead. So maybe they kept the body themselves. So let's imagine that, that maybe that's what happened. But now what you have, within months of that happening, you have this rapidly growing movement of Christians going around proclaiming that Jesus is alive again. And over the coming months and years from that, that creates a ton of unrest and a ton of chaos in the Roman Empire. So the Roman authorities, they don't like that. The Jewish leaders and authorities, they don't like that. So if either of them had the body, then all they had to do any time in the months or weeks or years that followed is to produce the body, and immediately that would obliterate the entire movement. As John Stott puts it, the church was founded on the resurrection. So disprove the resurrection, and the church would have collapsed. But they couldn't because they didn't have the body. And he says this, What the authorities didn't say is as clear a pointer to the truth of the resurrection as what the apostles did say. So when we consider all these theories, really nothing comes anywhere close to explaining what happened as the gospel accounts, as the rest of the New Testament, as the history of the early church claim happened. Now, perhaps as we read this text this morning, you noticed this. In this text, there are two groups of people that hurry away from Jesus' empty tomb. And both of them have this urgency. They have this urgent message to deliver that Jesus is alive again. And I would suggest to you this, that for both of them, for both the people who joyfully embrace the resurrection 
and the people who are going to refuse to accept it. This news about Jesus' resurrection is an inconvenient truth. And so we'll spend just the rest of our time talking about those two responses. There's first the inconvenience of belief, and then there's the inconvenience of unbelief. So first, the inconvenience of belief. And I think it's actually fairly obvious to see how the resurrection presents some difficulty to the Jewish leaders, to the Roman authority. What's maybe a little bit less evident is the difficulty that this presents to these women and the disciples. They run away from the empty tomb with this message to deliver. And it's a really hopeful message, but I don't know if you noticed this as we read it. There's a really fascinating combination of emotions as they run from the tomb that day. Verse 8 tells us it's fear and great joy. Now, joy, I get. That that Jesus was dead and, and is alive again, that's a joyful thing. That's a happy thing. What about the fear? I'm actually really grateful that this is recorded for us in the gospel accounts because it would feel dishonest if there wasn't that somewhere in this. Right? Jesus has just reversed the power of death itself. He has stepped out of the grave. That does not happen. And that's terrifying for these women, for these disciples. They've spent the last three years in close proximity to Jesus walking around. He's their friend. And this man who was their friend has now just stepped out of death and into life again. They're terrified at that kind of power. Though they won't understand it immediately, what has just happened at that now empty tomb has changed absolutely everything. It changes the course of history. It changes the course of each and every one of their lives. In these 40 days that follow these events, the disciples are going to meet Jesus again, they're going to be restored to him, and then they're going to be commissioned by him to spend the rest of their lives making disciples of all the nations of the world. And so what they do is that they find out this wasn't just some kind of three-year study leave, gap year kind of thing where we're going to follow Jesus around and learn a bunch of stuff and then go back to life as normal. Now this is going to affect the rest of their lives. Their lives are forever changed. And that's the inconvenience of belief. To believe that Jesus has risen from the dead means you can't keep on living the way that you're living. That you can't go on thinking the way that you've been thinking. It really means a radical reorientation of everything that you have ever known. The the purpose of your life changes. What you would call a priority in your life changes. What and who you love change. And how you live your life every single day is meant to change. So if the definition of convenience is something that fits well within your life, and fits well within your plan, something that involves little trouble or effort, then truly there is no event in the history of the world more inconvenient than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It will save your life, and it will violently mess your life up at exactly the same time. Now, there are some here I know today who don't believe in the historical event of Jesus' resurrection. But my bet is that most of us who are here today do believe that. That's why you wanted to be here today to celebrate that. For those of us who believe, who claim we believe, here's the question. As we claim to believe, how much do we resist the inconvenience of the resurrection? The disciples' commission, that's that's our commission. In light of Jesus' work, be transformed, and then in all things, devote your life to the honor and the glory of this now risen Jesus. That is far from convenient. 
That's far from convenient. I'm a pastor. I get paid to do this with my life, and I'm telling you, it's inconvenient. Love for other people is inconvenient. Generosity with your money, generosity with your time, generosity with your home, generosity with your possessions, that's inconvenient. Pursuing a standard that's not simply what you feel like doing in, the mo- in, a, in any given moment, that's inconvenient. So it's completely possible that we believe the resurrection in principle, but that we ignore it in practice. That we believe this as a doctrine, as a pillar central doctrine of the Christian faith, but we ignore it indeed. And that's why the Apostle Paul says that apart from the resurrection, our, our faith is futile, that we should be pitied more than anyone else, right? If, if living faithfully in light of the resurrection was convenient, or if it was expedient, he wouldn't say that. He would say what many people in our culture say when they're wrestling with doubts about whether or not this happened. They say, well, even if it didn't happen, at least I've lived a good and moral life. And Paul would say, what a bunch of garbage. What a bunch of garbage. Paul would say, God, save me from a good life and give me a life in light of the resurrection instead. If ever our lives fit conveniently into our culture, if ever the life of any follower of Jesus fits conveniently into any culture, then we're doing it wrong. I once heard a a pastor ask this question. He said, does your life make too much sense to the people around you? Does your life make too much sense to the people around you? And for those here today who believe, that's the question I would pose to you as well. In light of Jesus' resurrection, this radical transformation that it brings to the world, that it's meant to bring to each of our lives, does our life make too much sense? And there absolutely is something to be said for wisdom and for prudence, all of those things, but there's not something to be said for convenience. Though it is our only hope, though it is our joy, life in light of the resurrection of Jesus will never be something convenient. Okay, that's the inconvenience of belief. Let's also talk about the inconvenience of unbelief. For the guards and the, and the Jewish leaders, the resurrection of Jesus is clearly inconvenient. Right? Nothing proves that you are wrong like a dead person refusing to stay dead. It reveals this huge flaw in how the Jewish leaders have perceived Jesus. Right? They saw him as a false messiah. They saw him as a counterfeit king. And putting him to death only reinforced their impressions. Right? There is no such, there's no concept in their minds as Jewish people for a crucified, conquered Messiah. So if he were the real Messiah, they reasoned that he never would have died at the hands of Rome. He would have overcome Roman rule. He would have restored Israel to the people of God. But if he's alive, not only do they have to explain how they, the scribes, the leaders, the scholars of the Jewish people could miss the Messiah, they also have to explain how they could be so confident of themselves, so sure that they were right, that they opposed that Messiah, condemning Jesus to die. If you've ever had to apologize for being wrong, which is hopefully all of us, hopefully because hopefully we've apologized for it, not necessarily it's fun to be wrong, but if you've ever had to apologize for being wrong, you know how inconvenient that is. So how inconvenient would it be for the Jews to have to own this and to appropriate the resurrection of Jesus into their view of the world? Right? Jesus, and especially his death and resurrection, that creates a new beginning. 
in every sense of those words. It completely, for these people, would reshape the way they understood the God that they've claimed to have a corner on the market on for hundreds and hundreds of years. So if you're the people of God, how do you admit that you have rejected and crucified the one God sent to save the world? The infinitely more convenient option is to double down on what you already believe and find a way to ignore or to eradicate any evidence to the contrary. Any evidence that would force you to change. That's easier. And in fact, it would be so inconvenient to acknowledge the resurrection that the Jewish leaders take some drastic countermeasures to that. For one, they're willing to admit complete incompetence and failure on the part of the guards. They ask the guards, they pay the guards off to go tell others that. Tell people you just were sleeping on the job and the disciples stole the body. Okay, think of the the shame of that for the guards. They had literally one job to do and they failed epically at that. Not to mention how implausible that story would be. Here's the story as it plays out in the gospel accounts. In the garden, just a couple days before this, you've got Peter, and Peter is sword happy. He wants to start a fight. He has the first shot with a sword, surprise attack, and the best he can do is cut a guy's ear off. And then we're supposed to believe that a couple days later, he and the other disciples have Mission Impossible-like skills to sneak past a guard at at the tomb and roll the stone away while they still sleep and get Jesus out of there. But that's the story the Jews tell the guards to to spread. The Jewish leaders also make an alliance with Rome to cover this up. And we don't feel that because we're so distant from this culture. Here's the thing. Rome and Jews do not ally. They don't come together except to cover up inconvenient truths about Jesus. This would be like Jews and Arabs in Palestine coming together to cover something up. It doesn't happen except to cover up inconvenient truths about Jesus. So they bribe the guards. They commit to bribing Pilate if he finds out about this. These are the lengths to which the Jewish leaders and the guards are willing to go. But I want you to think for a moment. Think about what the rest of their lives would be like. Think about what the rest of their lives must have been like. They live out a lie for the rest of their days. They sell their souls for the sake of maintaining the comfortable world that they have known. They stuff and they suppress what they know to be true by pretending it didn't happen. Don't you think that would gnaw away at a person? Don't you think that would lead them to sleepless nights and a ton of anxiety and a ton of apprehension? They're either going to be troubled incessantly for the rest of their life or they're going to become calloused and numb to everything. And that's the real inconvenience of unbelief in the resurrection of Jesus. You live out the rest of your life in denial. And you live your life against the grain of how God has worked in the world. We do this all the time. And people that that we live near and live amongst in our world today, they do this all the time. Especially as we start to figure out, man, to believe this is going to be really inconvenient. It's going to be really costly and inconvenient for me to change my life. So instead, it's just easier. We entrench ourselves in what we already know and what we're already comfortable with. A fairly common conversation that I have with other people, and it just happens to be particularly with younger people, is about the difference between doubt and suppression of truth. 
Both of these are forms of unbelief, but there's a really important difference between the two. See, some people look at the resurrection of Jesus and it just is hard to believe. Like, can I believe that actually happened? That's sincere doubt. Others might say that they're struggling with that. They might say, yeah, I'm doubting that this actually is an event that could have happened. But when you ask more questions, you come to find that really underneath that, there's just a lot of, it just would be incredibly inconvenient for them to change the way that they live and to live in light of the resurrection being true. Right? And I just would su- submit to you this morning, that's not actually doubt. That's suppression. And if that's you, you have a lot of company, both in our, in our day and in the history of the world. One famous example is the author of the book that probably many of us read growing up in middle school or high school called Brave New World. The author of Brave New World was a man named Aldous Huxley. And he was a well-known advocate of meaninglessness. He was like an evangelist for meaninglessness. The world is without purpose. The world is without meaning. You have to create your own. But in one of his writings, he admitted that it was a convenient view for him to hold. It was convenient for him to believe in meaninglessness because it let him do whatever he wanted to do. See, if there's, if there's meaning to life, then there's going to be some kind of morality to reflect that meaning. And he wrote, he objected to the morality because it interfered with his sexual freedoms. So perhaps at times he did, and I bet you that he did wrestle with sincere doubt at times in his life. But what he describes in that piece of writing is not doubt. That's him suppressing truth so he could do whatever he wanted to do. The irony in that is that by suppressing, you live in denial, and, you cling, and by clinging to what you think is good, you keep yourself from what is truly good. Right? You cut your pursuit of joy and satisfaction off at the knees. And you're left for the rest of your life either with this nagging sense that I'm living in opposition to the way things really are, or you become so calloused and so numb that you lose the faculties to experience real joy and real satisfaction at all and are only left with the cheap substitutes. And there's that nagging longing again, still, recognizing maybe there's something more to this. So if you are someone who at present does not believe in the resurrection of Jesus, my question for you today is simply, what will you do with the resurrection? What will you do with it? If you doubt, if it's just hard for you to believe, I just invite you, seek what is true. If you're suppressing that, I just would invite you to be honest about that. Don't pretend that that's doubt. Just be honest that you're suppressing it, you're not doubting it. If the resurrection didn't happen, then go on living your life looking for and creating meaning wherever you can find it because the moment that the resurrection is proven false, I will join you in that. But if it did happen, don't persist living in denial. If you really want joy, if you really want satisfaction, find it in what is true. I began this morning by appreciating the integrity of the Apostle Paul and the integrity of Francis Schaeffer. So this Easter, may each of us, whether we believe, whether we don't, may we be people of integrity. Right? At the end of the day, here's what we need to see. At the end of the day, the resurrection of Jesus is going to be inconvenient for all of us. There is no way to make the resurrection of Jesus fit conveniently into your life. The resurrection is the inconvenient truth. 
The question for us is, will it be an inconvenience that we embrace or an inconvenience that we reject? Because to reject this is to set ourselves against the grain of the way that God has worked in the world. To embrace this is to set ourselves against the grain of the sin that so easily entangles us in a world in love with cheap substitutes for satisfaction. One way or another, we're going to be against the grain. And in one way or another, it's going to be inconvenient. So will it be inconvenience that we embrace and experience salvation simultaneously, or will it be inconvenience that we reject and suppress? May we be people who genuinely seek truth. And with all integrity, may we live in light of the truth that we find. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I am grateful to you this morning that you are a God of truth and that you don't try to hide truth from us, your people. That we have freedom to step into our world and say that all truth belongs to you. And so we need not fear it. We need not keep it at arm's length. Would you make us people of integrity that we might actually live in light of what we find to be true? And as Paul hangs all of the Christian faith on the resurrection of Jesus, I pray we would hang our lives on the resurrection of Jesus. Not that it's ever going to be convenient for us in this life. It will not. I pray we'd give that up. I pray you would make us, for those of us who do believe, faithful to living in light of the resurrection. For those who don't believe this morning, I pray you would do deep work in our souls. I pray you would help people to see that there is meaning and beauty without having to make it up. There's meaning and beauty to this world without needing to to create that for yourself. It's already been created. And I pray that recognizing Jesus that your resurrection is inconvenient for all of us, that we would choose to embrace it. Because in its inconvenience for us, as it radically transforms us, it makes us more like you, Jesus. It makes us your children, and it invites us into eternity with you. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.